Hey, public health people. Welcome to the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Recap Podcast. I'm your host, Damasella Grace Calhoun, MPH, and today we're going to be talking about the April 23rd, 2021 CDC MMWR. Let's get started. All right, so in Article 1, we are talking about one of my favorite states. I used to live there. Some of you know it as Ohio. We are not talking about why Ohio is great. We're talking specifically about a study that researchers did in Ohio where they looked at workers' compensation data, specifically in Ohio construction workers. And they looked at data spanning an entire decade from 2007 to 2017. So they were specifically looking at claims and costs related to musculoskeletal disorders from overexertion in construction workers. And overexertion is a leading cause of work-related musculoskeletal disorders among construction workers. And that's why the researchers are studying workers' comp claims, because it's a way to sort of effectively measure the damage of overexertion in construction workers. And what the researchers found was that workers aged 35 to 44 years old had the highest workers' comp claim rate, 63 per 10,000 full-time employees for work-related musculoskeletal disorders, specifically from overexertion. And while that 35 to 44-year-old age group had the highest claim rate, the claims from workers who were 45 to 64 years old were more costly on average at about $25,000, almost $26,000 per claim. And the claims from these older age groups resulted in more days away from work. And this makes sense because as workers age, they do become more susceptible to things like losing muscle mass and strength, along with other age-related changes that can affect the workers' abilities to perform this sort of physically demanding labor. So the implication of this study is that things like ergonomic design improvements and interventions are needed to make the workplace safer for workers of all ages, but age-specific interventions for preventing musculoskeletal disorders might be a necessary part of that solution. Article 2, COVID testing in Alaska airports. So, of course, travel can facilitate COVID transmission. We know this. Therefore, to reduce further introduction of COVID into Alaska, the state of Alaska just instituted a traveler testing program starting in June of 2020. And what this testing program required was that travelers could be tested either 72 hours before arriving in Alaska, they could get tested upon arrival, or they could choose to quarantine for 14 days upon arrival without testing. And this applied to all types of travel, air, land, and sea. But we're going to be focusing on the air travel. So among the 386,000 air travelers who arrived in Alaska during June through November of 2020, 48% of them chose to be tested within that three-day window before arriving to Alaska, 29% chose to be tested on arrival, and 10% chose to self-quarantine without testing after arrival. It's important to note that this optional 14-day quarantine only applied to residents of Alaska. So this airport testing program identified 951 COVID infections. Another way to think of it is they identified one positive traveler for every 406 arriving travelers. And so this testing program certainly curbed the spread of COVID from the potential 951 travelers that might have otherwise gone on and lived their life while they were infectious. The program certainly contributed in part to slowing the spread, but 
if you look at Alaska's numbers of COVID cases, they still matched nationwide trends. So when the United States was seeing a spike in COVID in October, November, December, Alaska also saw that spike. So this program by no means curbed COVID incidents completely, but regardless, it played an important role in stopping the spread of COVID via air travel. Article 3 just talked about more COVID in correctional facilities, and I say more because we've seen other studies published in the MMWR that have highlighted the problem of COVID transmission and disease burden amongst incarcerated people. And most of those studies were in the April 2nd, 2021 report and recap podcast, so feel free to check those out. But for this article, the summary is that from July to November of 2020, 382 outbreak-related COVID cases were identified among inmates in five Idaho correctional facilities, specifically facilities that offered work release programs. These programs, the work release programs, they essentially allow nonviolent inmates to continue their employment while still technically serving time. So think you wake up in a correctional facility, head to your job, let's say at some sort of factory, And once your shift is over, you head back to the correctional facility. That's what a work release program is. This article mentions that of the 382 outbreaks in these Idaho correctional facilities, two were linked to food processing plants, which inmates were working at for their work release program. The article doesn't directly mention what could have led to the remaining 380 outbreaks in prisoners across Idaho. The discussion section of this article points to CDC guidance, which advises correctional facilities to consider suspending work release programs, especially when the jobs involve congregate settings like food processing plants, for example. But I think that advice is short-sighted. Correctional facilities themselves are congregate settings, and they don't have consistent testing of inmates and staff. Also, inmates are not prioritized for COVID vaccinations. And to me, this is problem number one, not work release programs. Work release programs actually present quite a few benefits for inmates. These programs increase the likelihood that prisoners will find employment after serving their time, and they also reduce recidivism, otherwise known as repeat offenses, in inmates. So in my opinion, the public health impact of focusing on reducing the harm associated with work release programs which only accounted for two of the 382 outbreaks, is negligible and even negative compared to the impact of consistently testing and offering vaccinations to prisoners. And in the last article for today, we're looking at how physical distancing on airplanes can reduce COVID exposure. So if you've been traveling in this pandemic, and let's say you've flown a couple different airlines, there are some airlines that might be jam-packing the planes, and there are others that try to spread passengers out by keeping, you know, the middle seats vacant. That's been one of the strategies that some airlines have been using. And so researchers essentially modeled how likely you are to be exposed to COVID in full occupancy versus vacant middle seat occupancy scenarios. Vacant middle seat occupancy scenarios, meaning the plane is full except for the middle seats, right? And so what the researchers found was that in scenarios where there was that middle seat vacancy, COVID exposure was reduced by 23 to 57%, depending on the modeling approach. Essentially, this model is confirming something we've already suspected slash known, which is that a vacant middle seat does reduce risk for COVID exposure from nearby passengers 
and this data suggests that increasing the physical distance between passengers, along with lowering the actual passenger density in airplanes, could help reduce potential COVID-19 exposures, especially as COVID cases continue to rise in certain parts of America and as more Americans feel comfortable traveling on airplanes. That wraps up this week's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Recap Podcast. Thank you for listening. Please follow the podcast Instagram at MMW Recap for more information on the articles mentioned. Have a wonderful week.